Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. David French of National Review is in for Jim Garrity, who is off covering the NRA convention in Indianapolis today and tomorrow. We have bad, bad, and crazy martinis, or maybe it's bad, crazy, and crazy. But anyway, we have no good news for you today. That's the bottom line here. And, uh, David, let's begin with uh, our first martini, which is the worst-kept secret in politics over the past several weeks. And that is that former vice president and longtime Delaware Senator Joe Biden is, in fact, running for president in 2020. He launched a three-plus-minute video today basically basing his whole campaign on the fact that Donald Trump's got to go. I don't think he outlined a specific policy proposal on anything. Uh, Talked more in broad, sweeping terms uh, that uh, four more years of Trump would be a really bad thing. Here's part of his announcement. I believe history will look back on four years of this president and all he embraces as an aberrant moment in time. But if we give Donald Trump eight years in the White House... He will forever and fundamentally alter the character of this nation, who we are. And I cannot stand by and watch that happen. The core values of this nation are standing in the world, our very democracy. Everything that has made America, America is at stake. That's why today I'm announcing my candidacy for president of the United States tad melodramatic there, but uh, a lot of the announcement uh, focused on Charlottesville, which uh, you and I talked about at the time, David, certainly one of the low points of of the Trump uh, administration. But when we look at Joe Biden and, and him entering the race, I think a lot of people have some sort of personal uh, affection for Joe Biden, given all the personal tragedy that he's endured uh, with the loss of his uh, first wife and daughter back in the 70s and then the tragic death of his son, Beau, a few years ago from brain cancer. But uh, he's basically planning to run as four more years of Obama-Biden. And it's been three years. But from a conservative perspective, more Obama-Biden is definitely not what we want. Well, right. I mean, but I, I think the thing is he's looking at... He's looking at a landscape and he sees a wide open lane and path to the presidency. And you heard it right there. If, if you look at what the Democrats did to win back the House, what they did is they won over suburban voters. These are people who are the most uh, upset about Trump, the most unsettled about Trump's sort of character and vitriol and also probably the least likely to sort of embrace the Medicare for all stuff and the, you know, the more radical elements of the of the um, progressive platforms that are circulating now. So what Biden is doing is it looks like he's got the right idea about how to win the presidency. And that's to say, look, I'm not uh, I'm not I'm going to turn the page on Donald Trump. I'm going to uh, restore a degree of dignity and civility into American governance and we're just going to have to and we're going to contain the dam- the damage that Trump has done. That's not a that's not a message that's going to dent, impact, sway one single human being in Trump's base. <laughs> no question <laughs> about that. But he doesn't have to win one single human being in Trump's base to win the presidency. He has to hold on to those suburban voters that the Democrats won over in 2018. And, you know, look, there's a lane there. There's a lane within the Democratic Party. As there is a recent uh, New York Times exposed that the number of of Democrats who are not on social media, sort of not dominating this online conversation, 
uh, outnumbers those who are on social media by a two to one margin. And the people who are sort of off social media, more offline, are far more moderate and conservative than the online Democrats are. And so what we've had is a campaign that's been focused on pandering to these online Democrats to win the Twitter primary. And if Joe Biden can be disciplined, if he can say, I'm going to be relentlessly on message and say, I'm going to restore dignity, I'm going to restore civility, I'm going to restore a degree of normalcy, uh, it's not going to be a drama every week, he's not going to be a culture warrior. In other words, it's sort of a, hey, let's just take a deep breath and pause type of presidency. Uh, I think he... I think he's got a real shot at this. Um, however, um, you and I both know that Joe Biden has run two previous presidential campaigns. Right. And do the words disciplined, relentless, <laughs> <just> focused <laughs> apply to this guy at all? <laughs> uh, no. So uh, just consider me extremely skeptical that he can run the kind of campaign that he needs to run. Now, um, if he makes it to the general election, sort of that lack of discipline and sort of his prone, uh, his, his tendency to commit verbal gaffes will be less important because he'll be running against the, you know, human highlight reel of gaffes and Donald Trump. But so if he can make the, the general, that, that sort of lack of discipline won't be as big of a contrast, but in the primary, when there's going to be about every progressive activist in America aiming for him because they know that if he wins, they don't get Medicare for all. They know that if he wins, they don't get that big progressive wish list because he's just not committed to that stuff in the way that other Democrats are. So it's uh, let's just say it's going to be very interesting to see him run as a front runner with every progressive activist in America practically trying to tear him to pieces given his past track record of running some pretty incompetent campaigns. Which means he's going to need discipline, and given the track record, uh, that could be a, a difficult situation for him. His 1988 and uh, 2008 campaigns didn't last real long, got out before the first votes were taken in 88 due to the plagiarism scandal, and then 2008 he got out just after Iowa. So uh, I, I'm sure he'll do better than the first two runs. My question, though, uh, <laughs> Joe Biden, seems like, he's always seemed like a guy, even if you disagree with him politically, who'd let you borrow his lawnmower, he'd have you over for you know ribs on the grill, uh, something like that, uh, a guy that people can relate to. But when we talk about whether he'd be a, a modicum of st- a stability and civility, I also remember the guy who chaired the Robert Bork hearings, the Clarence Thomas hearings, and wore the Princeton hat while he uh, savaged Justice Alito, or Judge Alito at the time, in his confirmation hearing. So uh, would he actually be that guy? Well, you know, I think he he would be exactly the guy we've seen for the last, what, 35 years in public office, (laughs) which is he alternates between these personas. And But the weird thing is the people who've been around him Uh, Time and time again, you hear people on Capitol Hill say he's one of the most beloved guys on Capitol Hill, yet they've also endured some of his really uh, tough partisan. And I would add to that the just mockery with which he treated Paul Ryan in the VP debate in 2012. He just relentlessly attacked and mocked and and essentially laughed and sneered at Paul Ryan during the VP debate. And it was infuriating to watch. But then, you know, when he leaves the Senate – there were, you know, GOP senators with tears in their eyes talking about this guy. So there's a real paradox here. And I, I think what, what ends up happening is that the other aspects of his personality cause people to give him a pass for things 
that they would ordinarily just w- when they'd ordinarily hold intense grudges. So I think his other qualities have allowed him to get away with some things that would cause other politicians to develop a very different public reputation. And the thing is, that's the kind of thing that can drive sort of pure partisans the most crazy because they'll see a politician getting a pass for behavior without sort of knowing the larger context. And it just drives them nuts. And so I think you'll see if he runs a campaign against Trump, he'll benefit from this long reputation of sort of being Uncle Joe even while he gets about as partisan as a, you know, a junkyard dog in the actual race. And it's going to drive people crazy. um, If that, if it gets that far, Uh, that's the open to me, to me, the question is, I think if he, if he makes it through the primary, he's the overwhelming favorite to win. And not just because he's polling like that to begin with, it's because to get through the primary, he'll have had to have proven he's, a fundamentally improved and different kind of candidate than he's been in the past. He's going to have to be super Joe to get through the primary, not the same Joe that we've known all these years. So I'm still very skeptical, but, you know, given the the size of his polling lead, as we have learned, you know, to, to, you know, wise political hands will say things like, well, yes, I know his winning in the polls, but he's got these fundamental weaknesses. And then, you know, as we saw with Trump, they just sort of stay up there high in the polls. <laughs> yes, it doesn't matter. And and I and one thing I think about the primaries is I think that if he can hang in there, if he can win Iowa, say, maybe come in second to Bernie in New Hampshire, he's going to crush all opponents in the southern primaries. I mean, all those sort of red states that never vote for Republicans uh, but have you know a big vote voice in the in the Democratic pro- uh, nomination process. He's just going to obliterate. He's just you know that I could be proven wrong in this, but I feel pretty strongly that he will obliterate all comers in the whole swath of southern states, and that's going to be a giant pile of delegates. It certainly is, as Trump found out and uh, Ted Cruz found out to his chagrin since that was his whole strategy on the Republican side a couple of years ago. And we already see that organized labor is uh, revving up the engines for Joe Biden, which means uh, if he is, in fact, the nominee, uh, those Rust Belt states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, perhaps Wisconsin as well, are going to be even tougher for Trump to hold on to. Yeah, I think that if he's the nominee, there's going to have to be a different path to reelection for Trump than the normal the path to the presidency he took. I think you can pretty much start to write off some of these Rust Belt states. But, you know, again, this is speculation uh, and, and it's highly contingent on Biden becoming something we've never seen before. Somebody able to weather a Democratic <laughs> primary. Exactly right. Yeah, there was a factoid that uh, after his second presidential run that he had received fewer votes for president than Sarah Palin had received for mayor of Wasilla, Alaska. So uh, <laughs> he's got to actually show up and put up some numbers on the board before we can. He's got a mountain to climb. That's yeah. for sure. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our second martini here, bad slash crazy. New York Times, the number of measles cases in the United States has risen to 695, the highest annual number since the disease was declared eliminated in this country in 2000, federal health officials said Wednesday. The total has now surpassed the previous high of 667 set in 2014, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The virus has been detected in 22 states. 
Most cases are linked to two large and apparently unrelated outbreaks. One is centered in Orthodox Jewish communities in New York City and its suburbs. That outbreak began in October and recently spread to Orthodox communities in Michigan. The other outbreak began in Washington State. The CDC says, quote, the longer these outbreaks continue, the greater the chance measles will again get a sustained foothold in the United States. The virus mostly has stricken families that do not vaccinate their children. And the CDC blamed organizations that are deliberately targeting these communities with inaccurate and misleading information about vaccines. Uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio is uh, threatening residents in four different Brooklyn zip codes with $1,000 fines if they refuse to vaccinate. Uh, and their fines could be up to $2,000 in certain circumstances. So, uh, David, this is obviously maddening. Uh, the, the theories about vaccines and uh, connections to autism and so forth have been around for a long time. They've been pretty effectively debunked, I would say. Uh, but nonetheless, there's uh, a growing number of people out there that continue to believe that they do more harm than good. It's amazing. It's just amazing. I never thought that I would live to the point where smart people smart these are not communities uh you know these are not communities of people who don't pay close attention to things who don't you know uh obsess over things like their kids health i mean that's why they're doing this but i never thought i'd reach the point where sort of the trust in our institutions combined with the sort of the arrogance of your own understanding becomes so great that these two things together become so great that we start to shun one of the greatest public health advances in all of human history. And I was, you know, it, it really is interesting the different communities this targets. So there's, you know, the Orthodox Jewish community that we've heard of, but then there's an article from a couple of years ago in Wired magazine about the quote that the title of the article is the sickening, sickeningly low vaccination rates at Silicon Valley daycares. So this is Silicon Valley. And I'm looking at the chart here. And at the Pixar daycare, only 42% of the children of workers at Pixar were up to date with their vaccines. Ugh. 42%. Google Facility 2 was less than 50%. Cisco Systems just barely over 50%. You know, and you had more than half of them were below the number, the percentage of kids that, that is necessary for what's called herd immunity. And so I think this is a, a product of a, a, of a couple of things. One is, as I said earlier, this incredible mistrust of institutions. Um, there is, it's almost reaching to the point if somebody is, is the, uh, let's put it this way, appeals to authority just don't work anymore. You, you cannot preface an argument and begin by saying, as a doctor, I, I believe X. Um, because there will be, you know, in this wide, wide, wide internet world, you're going to find somebody else who's a doctor who can say, as a doctor, I believe. Why? So you can, because of the vast internet world and because of, you know, real failures in, in other contexts, people have just lost trust and authority. And then the other thing is they've gained too much trust in their ability to discern truth online. Um, if you talk to any, uh, any doctor now, one of the first things they'll tell you is one of the greatest threats to their practice is what they call Dr. Google, that patients come in with their own pre-diagnosis and course of treatment in their heads and in, that they, they've determined based on their energetic Googling. <laughs> uh, and I don't think it's any accident that we also see a lot of embrace of weirdo conspiracy theories. I mean, you can just 
you can go to uh, you can go to something on YouTube these days, hit play, and then just never touch it again, and you'll see an autoplay after autoplay after autoplay of the slickly produced conspiracy theory videos and documentaries and and all of it seems so official looking and it all seems so compelling and it it really is astonishing the degree to which you you can be persuaded of almost anything if you don't have firm pre-existing ideas and convictions um i'll say this the flat earthers greg can have made some pretty interesting online videos (laughs) right uh, so so interesting. You're almost like, I almost wish this was true. Like a, a giant ice wall in Antarctica. I mean, that's cool, right? <laughs> but, but it's just you can watch this stuff and and you can get sucked in to the point where you know even political figures. My own representative, Mark Green, got into a bit of hot water not long ago during and when he he basically raised sort of a CDC conspiracy theory about suppressing information about vaccines and so, which which was completely ridiculous uh, but again you know we're prone to conspiracies we are distrustful of authority and we overestimate our own ability to discern truth and voila we're getting measles again great Exit question, which probably deserves more time than we can devote to it here. What do you make of the government fining folks? Uh, libertarian argument would be that's their business. The other argument, of course, would obviously be their decision affects could affect a lot of other people. I would sort of as a conservatarian myself, I, I, I tend to think that um, I don't think there's a pure libertarian argument here for uh, against these fines, because the fact of the matter is, uh, if the old saying goes, is my rights end uh my, my rights sort of end when they start to infringe upon your rights or uh, I, I don't have a right to infringe upon your rights. You know, one of the things about infectious diseases is the first word of that phrase, infectious. These are things where you're not simply talking about containing the damage to your own family and to your own children. You're talking about extending the damage to other families and other children. And and that's where, uh, you know, I really draw the line at this notion that says, well, it's completely my decision. Well, when, when you're talking about your decision directly radiating out in the form of, of uh, infectious, you know, in, in, the tor- in the form of infection into other people, mm, I'm beginning to get less sympathetic. David, let's go to the final martini, Crazy Martini. You wrote this story, so I'm guessing your analysis will be spot on of the uh, co- contents <laughs> of this column. Uh, the title is Dehumanizing Speech is Still Free Speech. You say, if you're going to ask a conservative which predominantly leftist idea is the greatest threat to our nation's culture of free speech, I'd expect that they'd immediately answer with, quote, speech is violence. It's an understandable response. After all, speech is violence is not only the most dramatic claim, it's a claim that has occasionally justified and rationalized actual violence, including on campus. But there's another claim, one that's slightly less lurid and thus somewhat easier to justify. It applies in the most emotionally fraught debates about race, sexuality, and gender, and it goes something like this. No person should be required to debate his right to exist. Free speech is fine, but dehumanizing speech is something else entirely. 
For example, if you argue that a man cannot get pregnant, you are erasing trans people. If you argue that marriage is a union of a man and a woman, then you are dehumanizing gay people. And you go on to say that an atmosphere that is truly devoid of meaningful debate is one that is more likely to give birth to bankrupt ideas when the debate's not allowed to happen because you're somehow questioning someone's existence. So, uh, David, explain how much of a problem this position is becoming and and what the right counter to it is yeah this is i i wrote this because uh, for a couple of reasons it was there was a little bit of an online explosion over the last week or so because a progressive writer named jesse single who's a strong advocate for free speech was calling out this tendency on the left and the left responded very angrily towards him um, it's a virus that started, as many of these anti-speech viruses do, on college campuses, and it's spreading in particular to places like Silicon Valley. And it's essentially an argument that's you've heard the, uh, you know, I'm for free speech, but uh, kind of argument. I'm for free speech, but I'm not for hate speech or I'm for free speech, but sometimes speech can be violence. Well, this is the latest I'm for free speech, but and it's I'm for free speech, but I'm not for de dehumanizing speech. And then dehumanizing speech is basically defined so broadly as to mean like anything that questions my existing ideas about ide I, you know, things like race, gender, sexuality. And so you can't even in some quarters have an argument about can a man have a uterus? Because if you argue that a man cannot have a uterus, transgender activists will say you are erasing their identity, not disagreeing with them about an important matter of gender identity, but erasing their identity. And so this kind of argument gains a lot of currency with people who are the same kind of folks who sort of reflexively think, well, I'm against hate speech. It's in sort of another way of saying hate speech. And it gets it, it gets pretty ridiculous in its application. So, for example, Google created, which is only, you know, one of the arguably probably top five most powerful corporations in the United States, creates a, a board that is designed to look into the ethics of artificial intelligence as, as you know, computers are growing faster and smarter there's a lot of questions about artificial intelligence and the ethics of artificial intelligence. And so they asked the president of the Heritage Foundation, an African-American woman named Kay Cole James, to be on the board. Now, look, if you're trying to create a comprehensive a board that reflects a wide variety of mainstream views in the U.S., why not put the president of the Stinkin' Heritage Foundation on your board? I mean, she is one of the most influential conservatives in the United States of America at the helm of one of the most in, uh, influential institutions in the United States of America and one of the two leading conservative think tanks in the world. And so Google puts her on the board and Google internally goes nuts. People start saying that she has dehumanized them. Why? Because she believes marriage is a union of a man and a woman. That she erases their identity. Why? Because she doesn't believe a man can get pregnant. And so therefore, not only would they say, I don't want to debate her on these issues? They say she doesn't even get to have any input about the ethics of artificial intelligence. And Google, brave, brave Google, defending the marketplace <laughs> of ideas, decides to cancel the board entirely rather than have one where she sits on it. And so it's this is something that you know a lot of Americans, uh, it's another one of those things that a lot of Americans haven't heard of 
but it's gaining steam in elite progressive circles. And you watch, you're going to see it spill out time and time again. It's going to become part of the national conversation that we can't even discuss these issues anymore because they're dehumanizing or erasing people. So how do you push back? If every person that has the traditional view gets kicked to the curb, what's the uh, most effective counter here? Yeah, I mean, it's well, first, you got to raise awareness. Um, so people have to understand what's happening and 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 rebut it before it becomes fully mainstream. So that's one thing. You can't wait until it's fully, fully mainstream on the left and then go, oh, holy cow, where did this come from? So you got to deal with it now, rebut it now. And then the other thing is you can't give in to the labeling. Um, you know, an awful lot of people, we want to be known as nice people, right? We want to be known as compassionate. And what the left has been very successful at doing is sort of taking mainstream social conservatism, relabeling it as hate, relabeling it as bigotry, or now relabeling it as dehumanizing, and then sort of daring people to speak anyway. Um, and it's pretty effective. It's a pretty effective technique in getting people to shut up. Because, like I said, most people don't really want to engage when they're going to be called these names or accused of these terrible things. And so we have to pre-butt it. We got to, you know, we got to rebut it before it becomes mainstream. And then as it continues to leak out, we have to essentially toughen up and realize that if we're going to maintain the courage of our convictions, we got to be able to withstand some of this name calling. Guessing James Damore is not too surprised that uh, Google folded on this after some internal uh, corporate protests. He's the engineer who wrote the the memo on engineering differences uh, between men and women, which was not received well. So, uh, <laughs> David, as you mentioned, uh, uh, exposing this is the first step, and you've done well here. Uh, thanks so much for bringing it uh, to the fore, and uh, we'll talk again tomorrow. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Greg. David French of National Review, and for Jim Garrity today, I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America, and join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.